Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Mark Schwartz, who's a conservation biologist at the University of California, Davis. And he joined me to talk about the National Park Service, how it manages its ecological resources, and some of the challenges it's facing now and some of the challenges it will face into the future as well. I'll let him explain. So uh, Dr. Schwartz, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thanks. It's nice to be here. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the National Park Service today and the lands that it manages. I was hoping to get started, you could give us a little bit of an idea of the general scope of that undertaking and you know what kinds of lands are being managed by the Park Service. Yeah, well, the National Park Service is a, a, a remarkably varied organization. They have about 80 million acres of land that they oversee, and they come in things as varied as national parks to national monuments to national historic sites. Uh, and so things such as the Statue of Liberty is a national park, as well as Yellowstone and Yosemite. And so they carry, they manage some of our nation's uh, deepest wilderness and some of our most urban um, national features. Okay, and kind of given that large scope, is there a single underlying philosophy behind their management program, or is it you know sort of uh, varied across the different landscapes? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting question. In that uh, it there, I guess you can piece together a underlying mission, but in fact, every time Congress designates uh, a unit for the Park Service, and there are over four hundred of them. Uh, they uh, describe a mission for that individual unit. And so the mission of the Statue of Liberty, for example, might be to uh, provide a historical context and uh, visitors, whereas uh, what we think of as parks more frequently are things like Yellowstone and Yosemite. Uh, they are charged with uh, maintaining uh, nature in its uh, natural form and naturally functioning e ecosystems. Um, uh, but also provide access for visitors and enjoyment of nature by visitors. And by and large, how do they do with having such a large variety of goal sets? You know, it seems like there's a lot of potential for things to get a little bit haphazard or, um, you know, more challenging to do a decent job with such a broad scope. <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting question. I, I think the answer is yes, it's haphazard. And yes, they do a decent job at managing uh, their their goals. And, and that's a, a tricky thing and maybe a funny answer. But um, park superintendents have a lot of authority uh, to um, run their parks uh, the way that they see fit given the mission of the park and, and the, the structure of the, of the National Park Service is such that um, the staffing is mostly distributed out in the parks and there's relatively light staffing inside the Beltway in Washington uh, to do any coordination and, and overseeing, although th there are there's uh, a national office for uh, research and uh, in Colorado, and there's uh, national functions uh, in Washington D.C. Those uh, can help guide uh, parks on common issues that uh, stress uh, many different parks. For example, uh, a little bit more than a decade ago, it was recognized that invasive plants were a problem across many parks, and the Park Service as a whole set up a series of task force teams uh, to deal with invasive uh, weedy plants in parks, and that parks then can apply to and uh, get assistance from this national coordination team. 
but otherwise, parks are often uh, managed uh, with local resources that go to the park and uh, using local staff uh, and making decisions for individual parks based on those individual parks needs. That sounds awfully challenging. You know, if you've got 400 different, you know, uh, administrative units that are all, uh, managing to, uh, similar, but in some senses disconnected uh, objectives that, that, that sounds like a recipe for a lot of difficulty, but there are some national resources as well. You mentioned. Yeah, there's some nat- national resources. And I, I think that, um, parks are chronically underfunded and that we've heard in the news that there's several billion dollars worth of infrastructure uh, uh, backlog and that this has become a national priority uh, uh, because uh, we want parks to ha- uh, to be uh, up to shape, you know, good shape for uh, visitors to come and have a safe and um, exciting and interesting uh, experience with nature, and if the toilets aren't working, of course, that's 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 not going to happen. And so, uh, maintaining a, a robust infrastructure is, is should be a priority. Uh, and I think that one of the things that parks struggle with now is that uh, although those infrastructure needs have been put into the forefront of people's minds, um, there's also some very significant biological threats and that resources that are available to manage some of those threats are considerably more meager and that we are now in a position where many parks are very seriously challenged with maintaining their congressionally defined mission uh, with respect to the uh, biota and the, the, the nature that they're there to protect. Yeah, and speaking of those challenges, are those along the same lines that we would expect in other habitats? You know, things like uh, climate change, invasive species, perhaps uh, uh, changing sea levels. Is it the same types of considerations that are being faced elsewhere? Absolutely. The parks uh, are facing a suite of challenges that are common to natural areas uh, outside of parks as well as inside of parks. And and that, in fact, is uh, possibly, uh, you know, one of the challenges that parks face is that even if they were to successfully manage one of these challenges, such as an invasive species within the park boundary, uh, that doesn't help very much if outside the park boundary there's nobody uh, managing that same problem because they will just, uh, that problem will reoccur as those organisms spread back into parks. And so regional coordination becomes really important for parks. Yeah, I mean, that sounds, you know, similar to the way that we often talk about cross-jurisdictional uh, issues in terms of, you know, invasive species or, or you know, migrating animals and, and that it's you really have to administer those types of things uh, at, at a level that spans beyond a particular boundary, which, of course, whatever your flora and fauna may be, they, they're not going to respect those boundaries. Right. Yeah, that's a challenge. And, and you know, there are some really great examples of, of parks uh, engaging in these bioregional management efforts for some challenges. But uh, there's also some barriers that... Um, the federal federal system puts in place for some of that regional cooperation. For example, it's it's tech, it's actually illegal to uh, for for a park service to grant decision authority of park land to somebody else. And so, if you are uh, really deeply engaging in regional management on a problem, you're uh, agreeing to the premise that we will collectively decide what we're going to do about this particular problem. And in some sense, that's giving partial decision authority for park lands off to, to this team rather than individually to uh, park managers. And so that can cause 
uh, logistical problems and some of that coordination. Are there many other structural types of obstructions to to getting that sort of management done, or or is it mostly sort of a you know cultural or bureaucratic issue? Yeah, I think it's it's more a cultural issue than any uh, anything else. That there are uh, several barriers that I, I think um, parks have to deal with that constrain them from being as good a managers often as they they could be. An example that I think of is in the, in the process of uh, doing something, some manipulation to a park, uh, we have the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, that dictates the rules under which parks or all public agencies have to uh, inform the public of particular actions. And it's a very structured process of uh, collecting information, uh, maybe doing some uh, public vetting of what might be a fa- more or less favorable um, actions to take, putting out a suite of uh, potential actions in a, with a preferred action identified in a formal uh, document, opening up a public comment period, responding to those public comments, and then making a decision. And while that sounds like a good and open process, I think of it as a little bit like um, having this process where you and your neighbor are going to talk about repairing a fence, and instead of going over and talking about the fence, you know, you issue a 90-day letter of intent to fix the fence and, uh, and ask for a formal response in writing. And then before you know it, you each have your lawyers out talking about the fence, and this is just not a very collaborative way of making the decision in the end. And I, I feel like that parks have, well, all public agencies, but parks amongst them, have gotten into this process of following the letter of the law through NEPA because they, as park employees, can't really get in trouble for following the letter of the law, uh, but not... Uh, going beyond that and thinking about what might be good practices in terms of uh, good neighborliness in making decisions about park management. That might take a a really different process uh, that would have to run in parallel uh, to that NEPA process. Okay, so you know what would that process look like, and, and we can stick with the analogy to to fence building, or we can abandon it. But you know, if you were trying to solve a, a really pernicious problem, uh, what kind of angle would you want to take to do that versus sort of the traditional, uh, you know, uh, letter of intent, public comment, et cetera? Yeah, well, actually, there's a, there's a really good example of exactly how this went in one of our national parks, and that was the removal of. Uh, invasive uh, rainbow trout from from Yellowstone, and the Park Service went through the process of, uh, of the, through the NEPA process, uh, put out um, a uh, statement, asked for comment, got some comments back. It wasn't something that was particularly well paid attention to, and then started into the process of removing uh, rainbow trout from lakes when all of a sudden uh, the fishing community, which valued those trout uh, quite a lot, um, made a big stink and, and started calling uh, their congressional representatives and the congressional representatives called the park superintendent and the program to remove the invasive trout uh, was halted. Well, after this failure of the NEPA process uh, to move toward a decision, they took a step back, invited the fishing associations into the park to have a discussion about 
what those trout were doing to the native trout and why it was important for the native trout populations to thrive and how the native trout populations were also uh, fishable, particularly if they could build up the numbers by removing the other trout. And uh, two years later, they have uh, now uh, uh, an active program of removing the rainbow trout that's fully supported by the fishermen. Uh, and that it's a it's been a, a much more collaborative and uh, open and engaged process, and hence uh, pretty successful. And and what about that effort was different from the way that you would see that happen in a more traditional, or or you might even say more dysfunctional um, type of management regime? Yeah, so I, I think the in the the dysfunctional case, what parks will do is, um, and not not always, but. Uh, I think it's human nature and it's a, 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 a tendency to say, we're the resource staff for this park, we've studied this problem, we know what's best, what we have to do now is do the due diligence of writing up the documents and hammer it through that review process so we can get on with our business of managing the park the way we know we need to manage this park. And it's hard to fault uh, uh, resource managers for thinking that way. And in many cases, and for many decisions, that works just fine. But I think there are some uh, decisions that are out there where that just really doesn't work well at all. In fact, we have great examples of where this didn't work well at all. Uh, the trout in Yellowstone was, another, was one example. Wild burrows in the Grand Canyon and the 20-year process of getting people on board with removing wild burrows from uh, Grand Canyon was another one. And right now the uh, mountain goats that are being removed out of Olympia uh, National Park is a mountain, uh, yeah, uh, Olympic National Park is, uh, is a third example. And in each of those cases, there was substantial public resistance to what the biologists thought needed to be done. And, and I don't think the biologists were wrong, but there were, there was just a, a counter pressure by, the public that needed to be brought along in a far different way. And, and this happens a lot with removing uh, vertebrates uh, because often that removal of vertebrates includes lethal control and people just don't like the idea that we go out and kill burrows, for example. And in fact, the solution with burrows and uh, Grand Canyon relied heavily on moving those burrows about rather than, than lethal control. And so I think that um, when we get to some of these really difficult issues that um, um, engaging in a different process that begins with the notion that we may think that there is a best biological solution to this problem, but that doesn't mean it's the best solution to this problem, that there is a best solution to this problem and that, and finding that solution requires public engagement and understanding what people will tolerate or will not tolerate with respect to park management uh, can actually streamline the process and make it easier for that park service resource managers to get the job done than trying to push through uh, a, a NEPA process with uh, their biological priorities. Yeah, I get the impression that this is a case in which, uh, you know, the best solution isn't necessarily the best solution, but rather the best solution that you can really do. Yeah. That t obviously, you know, would take the, the construction and the maintenance of sort of, you know, these long-term partnerships um, among the public and, and managers. Is there any initiative or drive to do that on a, on a larger scale? Or is that something that's still being carried out by individual park managers kind of on an ad hoc basis? 
Uh, yeah, ad hoc basis is the is the way this goes. I think that there are. I mean, there park service is full of really dedicated people. I have been my interactions with the park service. I've just been uh, really impressed with the quality of people uh, that are there. But they are working under a lot of pressure to get things done, and uh, they need to move quickly. And that there are uh, some people who um, have a lot of uh, foresight now, and sometimes that foresight is hard earned by being on the wrong end of some of those hard decisions where they tried to go uh, do it uh, their way and it didn't work out so well. And so uh, they had to go back to the drawing table and start over again and have since approached problems in a slightly different way, thinking uh, differently about uh, solutions. Uh, but I, I think that one of the challenges we have is that we're really entering a new era of the frequency with which these hard decisions are confronting park superintendents. That um, there's, you know, it's a bit of a digression, but back in the 1960s, Starker Leopold uh, was commissioned to write a report on what to do about an overabundance of an ungulate species on the northern uh, uh, rim of the Grand Canyon and took broad license with this report and really set a vision for park service management in general, just across the board saying that what we really are, want to be striving for are self-maintaining ecosystems that can uh, uh, be managed with just a, a light touch uh, that reflect the ecosystems that were there prior to uh, European human uh, colonization. That, uh, and that's, that's the goal. And so although never formally adopted by the National Park Service, uh, it has become really the major talking point for how national parks uh, think about uh, managing their parks. And yet we have uh, invasive species problems like the pythons in the Everglades uh, or, or uh, mammals in Hawaii in the Hawaiian parks uh, and climate change issues that deeply, deeply threaten our capacity to think about managing uh, parks toward this pre-settlement, pre-colonization, pristine uh, notion. I mean, it's looking like we may have Glacier National Park without glaciers, you know, uh, Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park without sequoias, Joshua Tree National Park without Joshua Trees, you know, potentially under the future of climate change, that, uh, all, of, uh, that all those things are at risk within those parks. And then what becomes the park mission of those parks after those iconic uh, named entities are, you know, are no longer a feature of the park. Those are, those are deeply challenging uh, problems for park superintendents, and they're uh, ones that they're going to take a century to manifest, but they may take you know, a, a long time to actually come to some societal agreement about what is the appropriate, what are the appropriate steps to take uh, for managing parks in light of those changes. Yeah, it sounds like a case in which, you know, historically the the hands-off, you know, passive management may have been in some sense a reasonable approach to, you know, managing those resources. But given the number of perturbations and the severity of them, it's not going to work to produce the desired outcome in the way that it may have in the past as we go forward. That's right. And I think actually it's a it's a very it's an open question. I mean, so I think that actually the the projections are for sequoias uh, that you could establish groves at higher elevation within the parks and create 
a, a sequoia national park that still had sequoias and under even a, a, a dire uh, predictions of climate change. But it opens the very real question that, that actually those park managers, I work with those uh, folks a fair bit, and you know during the 2012 to 2015 uh, drought, they were getting phone calls about saying, well, are you watering the sequoias? Uh, because there were people who thought, we should be taking any measure that we can to protect these sequoia groves uh, from uh, uh, environmental changes like, like this drought. Well, there's another group of people who think we should absolutely not be uh, doing, taking extreme measures to protect uh, uh, something and, we should, that, and that nature should take its course. And so you, it, I don't know who these people were that were calling and whether they were hoping that they were watering or hoping that they weren't. But you know that there are people on both sides of that fence out there. And that if, uh, if climate continues to change as it's projected, those groves are at risk of, um, of being lost. And uh, the notion of either uh, letting those groves be lost uh, and hoping to that there's some colonization somewhere or actively moving trees upslope and establishing groves in alpine meadows is a is a deeply troubling question. I think you know, that, that uh, biologists have uh, reserve about taking such actions and they should and the public has reserve about taking such actions but the public also has uh, you know, doesn't feel good about the idea of letting sequoias go extinct within the park. And so neither of those, you know, that will be a, a difficult societal choice in which biology doesn't give us a clear pathway to a solution, that, that we have to decide we want to make, take extreme measures to protect sequoias or we don't. And um, I don't know how you make that decision without engaging the public and, and getting a sense for what the constituents think that that national park should be about. Yeah, it sounds like being a park manager is a more daunting task than it may have once been. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I you know, uh, as population grows and more and more people live uh, around uh, our national parks, uh, they have more of a stake in what goes on as we as the visitor base goes up and diversifies. And the park has been uh, actively trying to diversify that base of people who visit our national parks. Uh, the uh, the interest of what those parks are for those people is diversifying, and that uh, increases the challenge of, of managing one of the parks. Okay, so we've chatted about and established some of the you know myriad requirements that are uh, increasingly putting pressure on the management of national parks. You know, are there steps that the park service itself can take at a central level, uh, or you know just or even individually and on an ad hoc basis, but you know uh, spread across you know the entire service? to better handle those types of, of difficult problems? Are, are there things that they should be implementing, be those programs, ideas, decision frameworks, whatever it might be? What should they be doing now to improve their ability to deal with the types of problems that they're going to be facing with you know, increased frequency in the future? Yeah, sure. So I, I think there's, there's two things there, and I, uh, I hope to get back to the second one, but the first one will take a, a few minutes. Um, there are... Uh, decision tools that are uh, widely available that are uh, used sporadically within the federal government and for which there are training opportunities within the federal government that the federal government could be much uh, better about promoting within their agencies and so uh, parks have a lot of autonomy uh, to do things but 
there, Washington sets the culture, and there are director's orders, and a director's orders from the National Park Service that uh, strongly encourages superintendents to deeply engage with their constituents, their stakeholders, to establish long-term advisory committees and councils that bring in and give uh, people an honest voice and a seat at the table over long-term discussion about what this park is going to be about uh, is something that parks can do, uh, but they, they probably aren't going to do unless they're encouraged to do it because, as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're hard-pressed for time. They're short on resources. And, and then uh, creating a, an advisory board where they're going to spend some amount of time uh, every year talking about what do we do about bioregional planning on invasive species or what do we do about uh, using gene drives to uh, try and protect species or assisted migration. This is just another drain on their resources, and I think that, that it's something that uh, park superintendents would be reluctant to do unless they see a, a, a value in it. And I think it's the national office that has to provide that incentive and show through some of the examples that have already happened within parks uh, what the advantage could be and why it's to their advantage to, to take on these long-range uh, planning goals. And, uh, and I think that many of these decision frameworks, they, they work well. They, they, there's nothing about them that would run counter to a NEPA process, so it's not like the law has to change or, uh, or but uh, there are directives out of the national office on how you run a NEPA process, and that NEPA processes can vary with how much front-end work there is before proposed decisions get uh, put on the table in a formal process. And with uh, national directives to make that process uh, more socially engaged uh, and how to, and, and, and what they mean by socially engaged, who's, who are stakeholders and who aren't and why, and what is their voice and how do we um, give them, give these stakeholders uh, a real stake in the, in the outcomes. Because if you create a council, but then don't, but then, don't listen to them, people will stop showing up. So they have to actually feel like that they're, um, they're contributing to the solutions in order to, for these things to work. But there's, there's ways to do that, and I think the national office can really help um, set the tone for those park superintendents to work on this. And, in, and if they did that, I think you'd find a higher fraction of uh, park superintendents uh, taking this on board because they'd be seeing other successes as well. In fact, the Park Service could get this started simply by pointing to a handful of cases where this is the approach that was taken in a park and it worked. And so I, I think that it's, uh, it requires some national leadership. That's interesting. So it sounds like one of the big challenges that you, you, you know, you're, of course, lacking the resources, um, but, you know, everybody always lacks resources. But it's interesting to me that on the, you know, in order to get a lot of this stuff done, you don't need things like a law passed. Um, you know, you have the you have the mechanisms and tools in place that if they were administered differently with pressure being applied differently, um, you know, from the top, you could get a lot of this done with existing structures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a law professor, but uh, it, we did have this uh, assisted migration working group where we invited uh, several law professors to uh, weigh in on various federal laws and what agencies could or couldn't do. Uh, to do, in this case, climate change adaptation. Uh, and, you know, again and again and again, we find that um, the laws that are written, NEPA, the Endangered Species Act, 
um, are, you know, they're, they're, they state ideals and are aspirational and that they leave it to the agencies to specify how these things will get done. And as a consequence, there's a lot of flexibility in what those agencies can do in rulemaking uh, to uh, carry out uh, those laws and carry out the, in, you know, the letter of the law and the intent of the law. And so I think uh, that there, there isn't, this, isn't, this, does, this does not require a legislative solution, the, the, uh, nor does it inquire, require uh, inventing uh, new things. I think that those decision frameworks are on the table and available. Um, it's really a matter of a culture change to um, convince park superintendents that it's a better way of doing business. Okay, and you know, are there steps underway at this point to, to get some of this work done? Is it preliminary? Or are we still at the stage of you know, promulgating ideas and, and trying to establish buy-in among the park service? Um, or are they already working on this? Yeah, um, well, I mean, <sighs> I don't know that I have a good answer uh, for that. In that, um, uh, it takes you know I'm not privy to internal conversations at the National Park Service at the highest level, but um, you know the former director Jarvis had a director's order 100, uh, which um, I wouldn't say that it went anywhere near far enough in terms of promoting uh, what we're talking about in this article in uh, decision support and stakeholder engagement. But it is an example of what, what has been happening is that the director's order had a lot of information about diversifying park constituencies and how parks should aim to try and uh, uh, modernize uh, and take on challenges that they face. Well, that director's order uh, was rescinded under the current administration. We have a new uh, park, uh, uh, head of the Park Service, and that took a long time uh, to happen. And so, uh, and what the new directives from that office may be, you know, I, I don't know. That's part of the conversations that I'm not privy to. And so, um, what instead you see is anything that's kind of word of mouth uh, from superintendent to superintendent and passing on uh, best practices. So, um, there's a, a fellow, Dave Halleck, that uh, I have interacted with now a fair bit. He was um, you know, in, deeply involved in uh, both the, the mess with trout in Yellowstone and fixing that mess, and he's gone off to be a, a park superintendent on the, east, the eastern shore, and he, you know, he takes his, looks at his job differently than he would have had he not been through that process of engaging with stakeholders on the trout issues in, in Yellowstone. And, uh, and you know, he, so he, in talking, you know, rising in seniority uh, as a park superintendent and talking to other superintendents can uh, help uh, guide people towards better uh, decision processes. But there, there are just examples like that. So I would say that uh, it's really at a rudimentary stage. The, the interesting thing is I think that actually the current administration should or could possibly really embrace these kinds of changes that we're suggesting that if anything, this uh, administration, the current administration likes the idea of having broad public um, input into uh, actions on federal uh, lands and inviting those stakeholders in to, uh, for the decision process 
with something that, that is something that's not antithetical to their um, uh, worldview or their uh, political views. And so I think it it's something that uh, could actually uh, work. So, so I wanted to get back to this. Uh, there's there's a second kind of constraint that I, I think is 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 important uh, on these park superintendents, and and that is that the federal government. Uh, is structured such that if you want to move up in your position, go from a GS-13 to a 14 or 15, to move up, <coughs> excuse me, as a government employee, uh, you really need to move on. That park superintendents are tied to a particular rank, and if they want to advance in their careers, they move on to different parks. And so I've forgotten the, the number out, out there, but it's a... It's something like the average park superintendent is, is at a park for between four and seven years, and then they move on. And this, this happens in the Forest Service as well. But I think it's really, really difficult to tackle these long-term decisions uh, if you're only there for a short term yourself. I mean, it's easy to say that on the one hand, it's, you can kick the long-term decision down the road to your successor and just avoid the decision-making process. But I, I don't actually think that that's probably the biggest problem. The biggest problem might be that if you're a new superintendent, it might take you a year to sort of settle in and get the lay of the land and figure out what your most important and pressing problems are. Uh, another year to consult with your uh, resource staff to figure out what you're going to do, what you want to do about them. And then even if you want to engage in a public uh, process, uh, you know, that might take five to ten years to get everybody in, on board and build the trust among the different groups that that have different perspectives on appropriate solutions and then come out to a, a, an answer that you might then put through the NEPA process where you don't end up in in courts fighting over it for another ten, 10 years and so these long-range planning decisions can take a long time to come to fruition and if you're not going to be there long enough to see you know it, it see it to a point, you know, uh, the, average, the average park superintendent may not be there long enough to see that process to a point of stability where the interchange of individuals no longer matters. And so this is why I think it's important for parks to have long-standing uh, stakeholder committees because if you start them now in the process of five to ten years, by the time you get down the road, you may have even part changed a superintendent or two. But those bodies will have the, 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 the track record, the trust, and the wherewithal to guide the next superintendent to, um, to those long-range challenges faster. And I think it's our best opportunity to um, actually tackle some of these issues. Oh, that's interesting. So it's using the committee structure uh, to solve some of the problem that you would have, you know, otherwise with a rotating cast of characters who wouldn't have had time to form necessarily the relationships and to carry out these, you know, long-term processes over, you know, many years. Exactly. Uh, but you can, you can get a, you can get a stand in for that with the committee. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the federal government could probably restructure uh, pay and benefits so that people are encouraged to stay in parks longer, but I'm not sure if that's, uh, you know, I don't know what the challenges to that would be. And I don't know if that's the best answer, but, um, I think that it's probably hard to walk into a park and be told from five different people that on your staff and then five different sets of constituencies what the biggest problems they should be working on are and that you, then it takes time to sort all that out. Whereas if you had a body that was 
sitting there waiting for you to arrive and then consulting with you on what that group has discussed as priorities and why they think those are priorities. I think it's, it's a, it, it can jumpstart a process towards uh, moving that superintendent forward and towards solutions. It sounds like there's there are um, a, a lot of good ideas on the table, and now it's simply a matter of uh, getting as many of them executed as, as is possible. Yeah, yeah. So our intent with this paper is to really point out that um, that there are there are better practices that are available, and that uh, and they don't require a huge lift in terms of new legislation, or in, in many cases, not even new policy directives, but it does take a culture change and that that culture change uh, requires uh, some kind of leadership to uh, uh, push it forward because it, it's moving at a very slow rate. It's expand that, you know, these ideas of how to manage a park well are expanding through the park system at a, a really very, very slow rate. And uh, the problems are just getting uh, bigger and more challenging to tackle. And I, I, I feel like we're, you know, falling behind. Right. So, so the time for definitive action is now. Yeah. Or yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that's a great note to leave it on. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me uh, onto the podcast. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.